History happened everywhere. The verdict. This is our after show podcast where we look back at the most recent episode, episode 85, Knitting in Scandinavia during the 16th century. So if you haven't listened to that, go back, check it out, or else you will find spoilers ahead. All children are bad. Hello, my name is Pete Goddard, and I'm here in the HAT studio with the lanolin to my wall. It's Mr. Ryan Weir. You sure you're in the studio? <laughs> I am, in fact, in Spain, but uh, I've made, I've brought the studio with me. Yeah, the studio <laughs> travels around the planet, apparently. Isn't the studio the friends we made along the way? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we are joined, as ever, by the disarmingly deranged dabbler. It's the judge himself, Mr. Paul Dursley. Manana. <laughs> So now I've been so intently knitting, Ryan, I've forgotten everything about the last episode. So why don't you remind me what happened? Uh, yeah, but I'm, I can do that. But when do you want me to do that? Oh, I'd like you to do it in about 60 seconds, starting now. Well, in this week's episode of HHE Podcast, we travelled north to the Scandic kingdoms of Denmark, Norway and Sweden. From the rugged hides of reindeer to the soft wool sheared from sheep, we uncovered how the 16th century marked a pivotal moment in Scandinavian fashion. We delved into the enchanting mystery of a long-lost mitten, a tale pieced together by a circle of nannies, and we stood in awe at the story of an arm bone, broken yet miraculously knitted back together with the help of a copper plate that was surgically implanted by a medieval monk. It was knitting. It was Scandinavia. It was the 16th century. That was last week's episode done. Summarised nicely. Nice one, son. Now we're over to a young Dursley who's gonna tell you what he thought of the He'll take you apart without any care. He's the lovely Paul Dursley. The lovely Paul Dursley. Ah, yes, it all comes flooding back to me. A fine episode it was. I particularly enjoyed the way it knitted together overall. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, what I think about it means nothing. Nobody cares because we're only here for the opinion of one man, Judge Dursley. So, Paul... Before we move on, why don't you tell us, are you a big knitting fan? Did this land in your soft spot? Uh, no, I'm not really a knitting person. I remember I could never cast on nor cast off. I only did the stuff in the middle. It's funny because you're, you're not into knitting now, and yet you're the most crotchety man I know. Hey! Oh, dear. Come on, that was pretty good. That was all right. <laughs> My mother showed me how to do it years and years ago, but she always used to start, and I used to do the main body, and then she used to finish it. I imagine uh, knit one, purl one, to the factor of pi... <laughs> <laughs> Isn't knitting just maths, ultimately? <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's just knot knotting, isn't it? Uh, sort of one piece of one piece of wool or two, if you happen to live in some village in Sweden. It is quite fascinating, actually. That this continually knotted with itself. Yeah. See, I one of the things I looked into more was how was related to how mechanical knitting is, how easy it is to understand. Because what I dug up was in 2017, some knitters got together with a woman called Janelle Shane who was an AI expert, uh, and their intention was to teach a computer program or to get a computer pro program to learn how to write knitting patterns. Now, they rather brilliantly named the program Sky 
Skynet. Yeah, clever, like <laughs> Skynet. Like Skynet from the AI from Terminator. Mm. And <laughs> I don't want to spoil you on it, but they did dub the project Operation Hilarious Knitting Disaster. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, they, they found a, about 5,000 knitting patterns of a bunch of different things and fed them into this AI. Uh, and Janelle says the early output, <laughs> one of the early ones, she says, I could be wrong, but I think it makes an infinite loop that consumes all yarn on Earth. <laughs> it was this, this endless loop of knitting. Eventually, it started to learn, though. It started to learn that uh, the first row should be called row one. That took it a while, apparently. Right. And that each row should be a subsequently numbered row. Yeah. It started to give its patterns names, including, I quite like these, spinches, bottom up, squig ditty, and owl's punch. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, an interesting fact, Lord. One thing I do know about machine knitting is machine knitting knits up and down, whereas human knitting's left to right. Oh, why would that be? Yeah, I think it's just easier for a machine to knit vertically rather than horizontally. Oh, that's fascinating. How about that? That's how you can tell if it's a machine knitted jumper. You just look, check the warp and the weft. I don't know if yeah. knitting has a warp and a weft. No, of course it doesn't. <laughs> how could it have a warp and a weft if there's only one string? That's a good point. It's a very good point. You need twinned knitting for that. <laughs> but anyway, Skynet eventually gets a bit better at this, but it's an illustration of how AI is actually very limited. It doesn't actually understand knitting at all. It just tries to repeat patterns. So it would give you instructions that got a little bit peculiar. It would say something like, skim a bit to shape out. Sort of sounds like it makes sense, but doesn't really mean anything. Of one of them it started, it said, start with joy. Well, that that does make sense. I'm with it. It's on good that. advice, actually. That one. Right. I, I get don't, behind that. Don't start miserable. <laughs> this is my favourite one, though. On one occasion, it said, "Close the fintacle." <laughs> What's that? It's <laughs> just making up terms at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Although it doesn't sound very vastly dissimilar to when I was looking at the instructions for twin knitting. That's true. It meant as much as that did, didn't it? That was quite baffling. The twin knitting instructions. Yeah. So maybe we need to put AI on twin knitting and see what it comes up with. <laughs> So, guys, one of the things that we talked about during the episode was Lisbeth, Lisbeth the Witch, our earliest knitter in Norway. Ah, yes. Never trust a woman knitting you a nice jumper and trying to cure you. How Burn dare you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, poor old Lisbeth. Well, I mean, I gave you a little bit of a, her story there, but I thought I'd sort of perhaps expand on that a little bit further because she is quite the character. She's now formed part of the folklore of Norway. Yeah, so this was the witchcraft trial against Lisbeth, Pedder's data, but not just her, it was also her husband as well. I didn't realise that until I did a little bit more research. They were both imprisoned and both tortured and both executed. Uh, the husband had his head chopped off and she was burned at the stake. But yeah, the trial took place, as I said, over six months in the uh, Lindstrand District Court in 1670. Uh, and the evidence that was presented showed that Lisbeth had practised as a wise wife for a long time, at least since the 1640s. So for over 30 years, she'd been practicing as a wise wife. And uh, during that time, she had taken payment to heal folk with her natural remedies. It was said that she used traditional folk treatment methods 
such as reading salts and salt knots. I don't know what a salt knot is. I tried to find that out, but uh, I'm rubbing salt on a knot. I don't know. Um, but <laughs> reading salt, you, you can perhaps imagine what that is. You'd throw some salt crystals down on a table and you'd be able to read the shapes and things that come out through that. So there was said to be some sort of sign of her being a witch. People from a number of villages came forth to speak against her. During one court session on the 20th of August, 1670, one woman said that she had gotten rid of her ailments and pains after she had been given a drink mixed with hospital soil, water and salt. Mm. Hospital soil? <laughs> yes, hospital what, what soil. does that mean? Well, soil from the hospital. I mean, I think it's pretty clear. Do you not take your <laughs> hospital soil every day? I take a hospital soil supplement. Yes, I go down to the chemist and get the hospital soil bottle every couple of weeks. Anyway, she admitted that she'd used salt and beans to make people well, but claimed that she never used any of her abilities to harm anybody. The uh, authority, though, they said that uh, the blasphemous and very sinful prayers were the uh, decisive reason for for why Lisbeth ought to be punished. And uh, they said also that she had a shameful campaign of lies. So since her execution, Lisbeth has gone on to be recognised in folklore in Norway. She's used to scare and threaten children. Uh, in folklore, it said, among other things, that uh, she had a deadly evil gaze. And uh, it was so bad that they had to put a blindfold on her as they led her to the fire. Anyway, she is uh, supposed to participate in the Witch's Sabbath. Uh, she has a flying riding horse and a rod-like object was handed into a museum in Lillehammer, which is said to be her airborne broomstick. I thought she rode a horse, not a broomstick. And what you're describing is a stick. <laughs> <laughs> not to a witch. <laughs> Yeah. In 1962, a dramatised account of the witchcraft trial was had, and it concludes with the following remark. Lisbeth was a good person who only wanted her fellow human beings well, and then she was led to the stake and burned by her contemporaries and mistreated for 300 years. You can see the same thing happen on Twitter on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, by Torben Prestvik. And uh, he thought that time had come to address the balance. And so he proposed a sculpture of her be put outside of the cathedral or the Trondheim courthouse. And instead, at an event on the 17th of May 2005, a sculpture in memory of Lisbeth was unveiled at the uh, school in her home village of Leinstrand. Sadly undermined by it being a sculpture of her riding a flying horse. <laughs> well, I say, Lisbeth, we are here to bring your memory back as a positive person trying to do good in the world. Not a witch, a healer. Lisbeth, we salute you. Well, yeah, it, but you, you know, this is vicarious wokeism. Is it? Are you saying we should burn the witch? <laughs> Woking about something that happened 300 years ago. I, it's almost certainly a miscarriage of justice in that she is very unlikely to have been an actual witch. <laughs> Well, that is that is granted, given that they don't exist. It is possible that uh, giving people soil to take might make them more sick. Especially from the most germ-ridden environment in town. <laughs> <laughs> I see your point. I see yeah. your point. <laughs> well, I still support you, Elizabeth, regardless. Now, Ryan. Yes, Pete. You raised this topic of a broken bone 
I think it was a humorous bone that was fixed and wrapped in copper. Yeah, I wondered whether or not I was going to be allowed to use knitted for that, but uh, you seemed quite comfortable with that. I was absolutely on board with it because that's what I would have done, <laughs> to be honest with you. Uh, now, for me, what that put me in mind of was, I don't know if you've ever heard the anecdote about an anthropologist called Margaret Mead, who supposedly was asked, what's the first sign of civilization, expecting it to be the wheel or the lever or something mechanical or cities or trade? But actually, supposedly, she said that uh, there was a bone that had been found and it was a femur I think and it had broken and it had healed and actually in order to heal it must have this person must have been looked after by another person and that sort of being looked after and looking out for your fellow person was the first signs of civilization and humanity I like that yeah it's a lovely story unfortunately for me bringing this to the verdict meant actually looking into it and it turns out that's very unlikely to actually have happened (laughs) or be the case so I went down the obvious internet rabbit hole that you get she actually said in a 1968 interview, looking at the past, we have called society's civilizations when they've had great cities, elaborate division of labor, some form of keeping records. These are the things that have made civilization. Oh, and also a bone. <laughs> uh, plus bones and hospitals. <laughs> and hospital soil. <laughs> I, uh, I think it has to be a martini. You know, the Americans haven't invented much, but the martini is something I'll give them credit for. <laughs> is that the sign of civilization? Once you have the martini, you've yes. made it. <laughs> <laughs> it is the most civilized drink, though, isn't it? Like, you don't it, go into a bar and ask for a martini if you're some slovenly yob. No, I, th- I find the martini to be a self-protecting drink in that it's in that glass, which means the junker you get, the more you spill, the less you drink. <laughs> <laughs> but not only did Margaret Mead probably not say that and was more talking about division of labour and record keeping instead of being kind to one another, broken bones aren't actually even necessarily the precursor of certain death in the animal kingdom that is the sort of underlining idea between that this whole point. Uh, There was a study of primates that found basically about 30% of them had at some point in their life suffered a broken bone that had subsequently healed. So actually, you don't need someone to look after you. You'll be fine. Don't worry about it. You might die, but uh, there's not necessarily the immediate and guaranteed death sentence that they said. Although there was also a study, which was quite interesting, which found chimpanzees, I think it was. They don't know why they were doing this in particular, but they were tending the wounds of other chimpanzees by rubbing insects into the wounds. How strange. Into the actual wounds. Into the wounds. So they said they didn't know why they were doing it and why they thought these insects would be helpful, but it seemed like a clear behaviour that they would actually identifying wounds they weren't just rubbing them all over and they happened to have a wound and secondly it was uh, tending to an, another individual so you could say either that that does mean civilization appears in primates or you could say that's an even more reason why margaret mead probably didn't say the cool thing that i'd hoped she said when i when i started yeah. looking into this uh, well that, that that that's quite fascinating isn't it because i guess if you rubbed insects in it's possibly like maggots you know, maggots are very ah. good, are very good for wounds. And in, if they were ants, you know, it might be the formic acid that they squirt in has some sort of healing properties or antiseptic properties. It's quite possible because the article I read also referred to various other kind of medicine-seeking behaviours in the animal kingdom as a whole. It's, there was a few examples of seeking out certain herbs and things that would have antiseptic and antibiotic properties. So it's, there's definitely something in it. I think these evolution knows a, knows a thing or two, I suppose. Well, it doesn't, of course. That's the whole point. Evolution doesn't know anything. Maybe they were just 
just trying to put ants under their skin. <laughs> it's, it's not that possible to. It is possible. We shouldn't rule it out. We can't let our prejudices get in the way. Phil Nigel with ants, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they just really hated Nigel. Wanted to put ants under his skin. I don't know. I'm already in pain. Us. Stop adding ants. <laughs> what did Nigel do to be so unpopular? That's probably the question that they should have asked. <laughs> There's ants in my wounds. <laughs> One of the things that I wasn't able to bring to the show was an article that I found which had been written by a doctor, a modern doctor, who had uh, analysed the bone and found that while the patient had survived, they would have still suffered because of it. So uh, nerve and muscle damage would have been really significant enough that the arm would have essentially become crippled, extremely weak, uh, basically unable to be used. But one of the biggest problems, though, was copper leaching into the bloodstream. Uh, and that's because while copper does have antibacterial qualities like we talked about in the show, it still can affect our bodies. In fact, it only takes a small amount of copper to effectively overload our system. It causes symptoms that can include bloating, rapid weight gain, fatigue, exhaustion, anemia, insomnia, faster heartbeats, hyperthyroidism, hyperglycemia, nausea, vomiting, irritable bowel syndrome, constipation, <laughs> diarrhea, osteoporosis, migraines, joint pain, hair loss, acne, jaundice, liver and kidney damage, and of course, infertility. Okay, now we've all been toting up. How many of those do you each have? Well, I was <laughs> going to say, uh, at the start of that list, I was starting to wonder if I had copper inside me somewhere. Yes! <laughs> have you got metal bones? <laughs> I was beginning to wonder. I use copper saucepans. I'm worried. <laughs> well, right. As long as you're not eating them, I think that's fine, or implanting them in your body. They're tinned, so it's okay. Ah, well, that's all right then. Well, look, it's not just the physical reaction either. Apparently, there's a host of mental effects that come with having copper leaching into your blood. Uh, that can include depression, racing thoughts and panic attacks, personality changes, mood swings, irritability, brain fog and apathy, lowered sex drive and, of course, mild schizophrenia. You know, Olaf, he's not been the same since he had his arm bones wrapped in copper. Yeah. Well, no, you wouldn't be, would you? <laughs> you wouldn't even necessarily think that's probably that copper leaching into his bloodstream. Now, I looked to see if there were any other earlier examples of metal implants. Now, there are ones that do go back, but it tends to be more dental. So there is gold and silver thread that has been shown woven through teeth to keep them in place. So if somebody's been punched in the face and their teeth are falling out, they've had their teeth woven together, essentially, using, <laughs> using metal thread. So the Romans supposedly used iron nails to hold fractures together. So if you broke your leg, they would set the bone and then use a, a nail and hammer it in place to keep it together. <laughs> but the earliest case that I could find is pretty controversial. And that's because the date of origin has not yet been confirmed. So this is uh, a skull that was found in Peru. It's this elongated cone-shaped skull, and it has a thin plate of hammered gold, which is laid over as a series of fractures, which likely comes from a form of you know, where they're trying to drill towards mm -hmm. the brain. To give the brain a bit of breathing space. <laughs> yeah. And it's said to be 2,000 years old, which, if true, would actually make it the earliest evidence of any kind of ancient surgical implant. Do you guys have any metal in you? 
outside of the fillings in my teeth. I think that's as exciting as it gets, I'm afraid. No, I have no... Me- apart, apart from the obvious... We've all got loads of metal in us, including mostly iron, of course. Oh, oh in your blood. Well, in, in your blood, but there are trace amounts of most metals in your body. So if I'm made of metal, why can I go through an airport scanner so easily? Because you're not made of metal. If I squeezed all the iron out of my body and put it in a cup, how much would there be? It's something like a medium-sized nail. Say a half-inch nail. Can we pan Peter for gold? (laughs) (laughs) If you filter my entire physical being for enough iron to make a single nail, (laughs) I don't think you're going to be rich soon. (laughs) Yeah, it's iron. It's worthless. So just one last thing before we get off of uh, metal bones. I want to tell you about Themistocles Gluck. (laughs) I'm glad that you do. (laughs) Uh, He is considered a pioneer of surgical implants. He was born in Germany in 1853 and uh, he pursued medicine and eventually distinguished himself as a skilled surgeon. Are we certain he didn't attend Willy Wonka's chocolate factory at any point? (laughs) Themistocles Gluck. (laughs) Yeah. Um, In the 1890s, though, he started feeling sorry for some of his patients, uh, particularly the ones that had joint disease. So he thought, I can help them by creating some prosthetic joints. Uh, So he began experimenting and he developed an artificial knee joint, one that he made using ivory. And it was somewhat of a success, as you can imagine, for 1890, (laughs) using ivory. The the bar is low, I think. (laughs) Yeah, and so he moved on to hip replacement surgery, which God only knows what that must have been like in 1890. But yes, he created one of the first known artificial hip joints. And again, he used ivory, but he fixed it in place with cement made from pine resin mixed with powdered pumice stone. <laughs> Just to really keep it in place. Now, through his experiments, he drew up a series of protocols that reduced the risk of infection. And he advocated for strict sterilization and aseptic procedures when he was doing these things. So he was real a, a trendsetter. But ultimately, he was virtually unknown during his life, despite an amazing name. His artificial joints were just not widely adopted, probably because of the high rate of infection. But today, he is celebrated as a pioneer, and he is said to have laid the groundwork for joint replacement surgery. So if you're up for getting a hip replacement at some point, it's all thanks to Themistocles Gluck. Thanks, Themistocles Gluck. I salute you with my fake ivory hand. (laughs) (laughs) And so we've come to the end of the line. It's time to step into the dock and prepare to face the people's judge. Judge Dursley, are you ready to give your verdict? Yes, I am. Then will the defendant please rise? I have risen. Your Honour, as usual, let's start proceedings by asking your verdict on factual content. For factual content, well, there were a number of interesting factoids about knitting 
Thank you. Your double-ended knitting especially. Yeah. Can I just say that nobody listening to this episode anticipated an actually exciting section <laughs> on knitting. Because even That's myself true. was surprised when I found that story and went, oh, there's actually something quite interesting here. Maybe. So you were smart for factual content, Mr. Dursley. Okay, Ryan. I should give you C+. That's standard. Standard fare. I'll take it. A little disappointing, I would say, but uh, let's move on. So your next grade, sir, is for the entertainment value. Were you entertained? It was an entertaining episode. As you said, you found some interesting factoids about wool and your knitting of bones. It's a fair use of the term knit. It's a, it's a commonly used phrase. So again, C+. Ah, oh, I'm a C plus guy. You are. Which brings us to the ever unknown, mysterious, and frankly surprising Dursley Factor. How did you feel about it, Paul, for whatever reasons you feel? I like episodes that have a subject that's off the wall or unusual or that you'd never, never think about. So this was a good one because something like knitting, think nothing, you think nothing of it, don't you? You think of your maiden aunt knitting booties first children. Orphans. <laughs> oh, okay. If you wish to criticise me when I actually was actually going to give you a moderate score, no, no, no. It's just your frame of reference was entirely Victorian, though. It was just hilarious. I was not. <laughs> uh, anyway, I apologise for interrupting your lordship. Okay, that's a long way to saying for the interest factor, I would give B minus. I mean, it's almost a C plus, but I'll take it. Would you rather a C plus? No, 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 no. I'll take it. Thank you. Well, we move on to the final verdict. But before the judge passes his ruling, Ryan, you've got a chance to enter your plea. If you choose to do so, please make your plea now. Uh, uh no, Peter. No, I don't. Probably wise. <laughs> so, Your Honour, the defendant stands before you. Have you reached your verdict? Yes, I have. And so I ask respectfully for your ruling. Ryan, overall, I should give you... B minus. Woohoo! Pulled it out of the bag a bit. Oh, yay! Only if the bag was knitted. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Judge. I'm happy with a B minus. My pleasure. Okay, that's our show for this week. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about on the show or just say hi, you can reach out to us on social media through the website at hhepodcast.com or by email, peteandryan at hhepodcast.com. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. And one way to definitely feature on a future show is to rate and review the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you recommend us there, it really brings us to new listeners. And that is always welcome. Now, if you're on Mastodon, Facebook, Instagram or X, you can find us at HHE Podcast. And if you subscribe to those, you're going to get an alert every time we post any trivia, tidbits, news and photos. And we'll be back again soon with our next episode, Mindfulness in the Juniverse. God, I'm looking forward to that one. <laughs> and that's it. I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to Z 
So Ryan, I too have one final thing, which was uh, on the topic of knitting, and I did mention that I had briefly entertained the idea of buying a Faroese jumper, only to discover they were somewhat out of my budget. You said that in the episode, and I thought Egyptian. <laughs> Genuinely as well. You said it, and in my mind I went, why is he talking about Egyptian? That makes no sense. <laughs> you lunatic. I discovered why they're so expensive. So apparently the sheep on the Faroe Islands, of which there are many, have more lanolin in their wool, which is the kind of oily substance that renders it waterproof. So that that's why the Faroese jumper, it's not just the way they knit it, although they have their styles and uh, their methods, but it's still just knitting. But actually it's the wool itself that is different as well, which is part of why it's really, really expensive. But uh, yeah, so if anyone wants to get me anything for Christmas, you know what to get me, a Sarahland sweater. Oh yes, you were talking about steganography as well, weren't you? I don't remember talking about dinosaurs at all. <laughs> no, steganography is hiding of messages. Oh uh, yes, during the Second World War, spies leaving encoded loops in their jumpers. <laughs> Yeah, well, there, there are loads of examples of that, isn't there? There's uh, the famous one about the was it was it the messenger who had a message tattooed on his head? Let the hair grow. Went to the other king who shaved his head off. Read the message. Wrote a reply. So the message passed, but it was hidden. But it, obviously, it took a number of months for it to go backwards and forwards. <laughs> that was the longest game of correspondence chess ever played. Yeah, <laughs> that's the kind of one where you spend months doing that. You get there, they shave it off, and go, "Oh yeah, we knew that." Why <laughs> <laughs> this tattooed to my head? <laughs> Another one they used, uh, which was quite good, was shoelaces. How's that work? Well, it, it's how you lace a pair of shoelaces up. You can sort of see there were, there are, of course, a mathematical number of possibilities, and they assigned messages to each of those. That is the kind of thing, uh, I get the theory, but when I'm there looking at a shoelace, I'm just going to panic and go, I, I don't know what it means, I don't know what it says. It's just a shoelace. <laughs> it just, just makes me wonder what messages my shoes are trying to get to me. You've been saying something this whole time. <laughs> and another, another, another one, uh, button cuffs. If you had, you know, in the olden days, the buttons on a cuff used to be able to be done up and undone. So you could, by which ones you had done up and which ones you had undone, you could actually send a message. I have to say, you know almost too much about spying and secret messages. Very suspicious. Were you in the secret service, Paul? I'm afraid I can't say. <laughs> the name's Dursley. Judge Dursley. <laughs> Drink some martini. It's all coming together. <laughs> all right, I should try and upload, right? Yes, please. And I'll see you later. So I've got to go and see some horses.